Hello, dear listener. This is Eric Veal with the AppsJack Capable Communities Podcast, and I am coming to you from Seattle, Washington, which is home of Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Boeing, and an incredible startup ecosystem that rivals Silicon Valley. Each episode, I bring on friends and guests who are executives and business leaders from the local community and around the world to talk about a topic that we find very interesting. We base our conversations largely on the APQC framework, which divides businesses into 13 different skill or capability areas. We think that these aspects are very interesting and hope that you enjoy our conversations. Please enjoy this episode. All right, welcome. Uh, today is the 14th of January, and this is Eric Veal with the AppsJack Capable Communities Podcast. And today in the studio, we have James Murray, Stephen Kubacki, and Christian Harris, who are all friends and associates of mine in the Seattle area. And our topic today is developing vision and strategy, which is the first of 13 uh, capabilities within the, within the American Productivity and Quality Center's process classification framework. And we use that because it's a, it's a structure we can use to think about business. But So today we're going to focus on the skill of developing vision and strategy. And I think to just kick it off, uh, let's ask a question. And, and feel free, actually, let's just do a quick mic check. So just, just say hello, James. Uh, so I'll introduce James real quick. I've known James for probably five years now. He has business cloud services in Seattle, and he does strategic IT development. Uh, real quick, uh, so Steve Kubacki, he's a clinical psychologist who does, has a private practice in Seattle and is a consultant to virtual reality startups. And he's also working on a project with virtual reality that uh, that helps can talk a little bit, Steve, about the virtual reality project. Yeah, well, it's actually this one. It's not quite virtual reality. It's going to be more, at least in the beginning, a mobile app. Okay. Um, but the uh, the focus is on developing an app to empower cancer patients. Okay. So they can feel more in control, um, maybe engage in some stress reduction and and some self healing. Very good. And then the the third guest we have in our in our audience or in our panel today is Christian Harris with C Town Media who produces the podcast and has been uh, doing media production for decades and uh, so he's on the show with us today as well. Say hi Christian. Hi Christian. <laughs> hi Christian. <laughs> uh, so Steve, real quick, I maybe kind of kick us off with your thoughts on how virtual reality, for example, fits into the domain of developing vision and strategy, or how does a tool like yeah. visual strategy, uh, visual, sorry, virtual reality fit into vision and strategy? Well, I think you have to, you know, virtual reality is quite expansive in all the different topic areas or content areas you can get involved in. So I think before you, you know, whatever it is, if it's virtual reality or some other kind of business, you need to come up with kind of a vision or mission statement, uh, set of values, and a business strategy. So I think those are pretty important. And all three kind of interact. You might start with one and go to the other, like you might start with a vision and come with values, but your business strategy might inform you that you might need to change your values or you might need to alter your, uh, your vision statement. And, and so do we see those as kind of anchoring tenants? James, do you have any opinions on... So the, the three things that Steve mentions of values as kind of an anchoring and central thing that, that are probably changing very infrequently. Vision, which is also hopefully something that changes very infrequently. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then mission, which is maybe more of an internal thing to create a sense of urgency and motivation for a group to go achieve a goal. Um, what, what, is the, what are the important aspects that you see of developing vision and strategy? Well, it's a good question. I come from the world of uh, technology, and we don't really think too much about mission and strategy and that type of thing at that place. But actually, I think the reason why technology projects fail is probably because we haven't anchored them in what the business purpose or the business reason, which is anchored in the vision of that, of that role, of that idea is. So I think it's very important when it comes to technology to understand that long before you design or develop the technology you're working on. 
Right. And, and then in, in the APQC model, there's a reason that vision and strategy is first. Do you guys, and I just mentioned this before we started the podcast, is um, in John Cotter's Eight Steps for Leading Change, uh, vision, to, to develop and communicate a vision strategy, uh, the first two steps are that somebody is, is motivated and has a sense of urgency or that a team is. There's some kind of moment that is important for them. And then the second part is that there's a guiding coalition. So there's, there's people around the um, leader to support them. And then, and then once there is a vision, and then I think these other aspects, like you say, Steve, of strategy and, and or mission, there's, there's other facets of, of leadership that are critical. Why? Like, why, why, why does this stuff matter? Well, leadership is going to be pretty important in terms of your mission statement or your, your vision. Uh, if you are somebody, let's say, who prefers a more autocratic business style kind of top-down, that's going to be kind of a very different vision statement than somebody who is has a more collaborative or more flat management style. Mm-hmm. So I think right at the beginning, I think it's important for uh, the person or persons who are developing the vision statement to become uh, be aware of who they are. And, and kind of how they operate in business, how they operate perhaps in normal life with other people, yeah. and to really be clear about what those, uh, what those traits and values are. And I think, I think the leadership, like to add on to what you're saying, Steve, is that the leadership, the mission is going to determine the, the environment that everybody's going to be living in, the culture that's going to be going on. And, if, and the leadership needs to develop that culture in a way that it attracts the people that are in alignment and repels the people that aren't in alignment with mm-hmm. that culture. So, so is there a thing about focus there? Is, is that an aspect of it is, or, or just clarity that you have created a brand? I think that's another aspect of this is, is that your brand, Christian and I talked about this at lunch, that uh, you can only change your brand or your name so many times. If, if you... You know, if I start my life as Eric Veal and, and switch over to a, a different name at some point in my life, I might have lost, and perhaps intentionally, a percentage of my audience about, like, you know, why did that fellow change his name or, or you know, make, make some kind of, like, drastic shift. Like, name and brand is something that's, that's hard to change. Um, I'm just thinking about the, the anchoring aspect of it. There's so, so let me think about it this way. Is... It, it felt like, so from a vision perspective, we can, we can think of it in a linear path where here's the vision and here's the steps in, in five years or in 10 years or in 50 years, this is what I see and this is what I believe will be true. It's, it's a fairly linear and outward look. But in, in talking to Christian just a little bit ago, we agreed that you still need to be flexible and this, I think, comes back to values that although you might have that, that belief that you have a vision that is, is big and years long, that as you engage with the world, if you're 100% bulldozer oriented and just driving on your mission and vision and not listening to your audience, not taking feedback and not actually creating followers, you're not doing it right. Yeah, you'll be out of business soon, probably. Yeah. And, and is that, is that a, a disconnect between... What is it between self and external, like internal and external? Is is that the thing? What's the conflict there? Why? Well, well, I, I think the vision is going to be driven uh, by some degree by your product. So if your product is making paper clips, that's pretty different than your product is developing some kind of VR app that has some kind of empowerment aspect to it. I really think it depends what you're making. That's going to partly drive your vision. If your vision is like the wolf on Wall Street to, uh, you know, make lots of money, uh, that's a different vision statement, and it's going to have different values. Yeah. You know, so I I think partly is your product. Your product, I think, drives this. Obviously, I think your personality, who you are, how you, you know, and will drive that. And then I think what you were talking about just a little earlier, um, I, I think business strategy, you know, you, short-term business strategy versus long-term business strategy. You know, the long-term vision versus, mm-hmm. well, how do, we get this, how do we get this business off the ground? And like strategy versus tactics as a thing, okay. of, yeah. for example. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting. I mean, kind of as you're talking, James, I, I think, I think our, our values largely inform that, uh, that vision, right? 
you know, right. uh, I think the more traditional way of looking at it, a lot of businesses look at it is the, the vision is around the product, but it seems like there's a kind of a shift, you know, with the, with the younger generation kind of coming into the corporate world and stuff with the vision being like, my purpose is to love the community, is to serve people, whatever. And then the actual strategy is, well, how do we do that? What do we actually make that serves that purpose? And so as Eric and I were talking, you know, like that, that vision probably won't change that much, but how you implement it in your strategy probably will. You know, I mean, like I don't know many businesses that start off with, you know, a particular strategy and, you know, and keep it 10 years down the road. Like usually you're, you're making adjustments. You should have something in place to either quarterly or annually revisit that. Like our, is our, is our vision or strategy still in line with what we're actually doing, what we actually, so, actually believe. So when you're doing that month, that quarterly thing and making sure of alignment, are you thinking that um, you're trying to realign the company on that statement or are you saying, we need to rethink our strategy. I think it go either way. I mean, because sometimes you realize, well, the thing that I thought was my vision and my strategy isn't really what we're passionate about, isn't what, really what we're about. So you align your, your words and your doctrine to fit that. And sometimes it's, oh, we've gone off track because our uh, you know, mission creep, because our scope of what we're doing has gotten off track of what we set out to do. And we need to, you know, cut mm -hmm. back on what we're doing so that we can focus on what we're so, really about. Now, are you thinking in terms of a small business or uh, that, that tends to be that, that's business. my area is kind of small, medium businesses. I mean, the enterprise and larger may be different. You know, like yeah. I'm not real familiar with kind of how the bigger bureaucratic systems work. You know, and and my my familiarity is more with the larger organizations, and you can change tactics anytime you want. Like the economy changes, and you quickly change your tactics. But if your core value or your core mission is centers around honesty and integrity. You're not going to be changing that. Right. But you could realign your business if you realize that you weren't quite matching that alignment. Right. Yeah, I think that the, the whole idea of the, you mentioned like two values, honesty and integrity. Yeah. You know, these values get thrown a lot around and sometimes they really don't have much of a meaning. And that can create a sense of inauthenticity in the corporation or the business, even when it's starting out small it can create a lot of dissonance or conflict because mm -hmm. people say, well, I don't believe any of this. This is, <laughs> this is a bunch of nonsense. Sure. And again, this is, I, I think that's why it's really important for the, for the founders or the, the core people to really understand what they're about. Yeah. You know, are we about, let's say, saving the planet or doing something for society? Or are we just about ourselves? Are we just here to make some money? We're just here to make a product and the heck with the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's important to be clear about what that is. Because if you throw in certain kinds of statements because you know, well, you know, it's politically correct now or it's mm -hmm. going to get the millennials involved or something like that, people are going to find you out sooner or later and the system is going to break down. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's a great point, Steve. Uh, you know, because the, you know, in, in business world, there's, you know, catchphrases and, you know, people use things don't really, you know, like synergy and, you know, like they don't have any meaning. It's just kind of business fluff. And if, you know, your internal culture reflects that it's business fluff and doesn't really mean anything, and there's no, uh, you know, there's there's no authenticity behind it. You know, another kind of catchphrase. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, then they're they're not going to be on board. You know, like your business culture can't just be on paper. It has to be something that's you know actually lived out, whether that's through management style or or from the top down or whatever. You know, I think that goes back to leadership. Mm -hmm. If your leadership is magnifying your mission statement, your core values. Mm -hmm. You will be the, the the leadership culture will reflect that, and the yeah. company will be that. But if your man, leadership style is we're going to say this just to fool everyone, then your staff and your employees, your executives yeah. will reflect the same exact thing. Oh, we're not really believing this. We just say we're doing so we can attract the millennials or whoever or whatever, mm -hmm. and that's where we have problems. I yeah. Think. Yeah, so the, the authenticity part, I think, is pretty central. And I like the point, Steve, that you made about um, selling paper clips or basically the, the interface. So there's, there's businesses has, have many interfaces. So there's the founders and the managers and the employees and the investors and all the different stakeholders. So that, that's a, a single interface, which is also a complex interface. But then business businesses create almost necessarily other interfaces or agents such as their products or their services. And those are the things that actually go out into the market and, and scale and like truly because you're, you know, your staff only is going to get so big. It's only going to be 
so big. I'm thinking more of like enterprise and scale stuff, but, um, the product and service dimension is this interface that you intend to build or create and do. And then that is your option or a leader's option to create its own parameters and properties and qualities that, that are also good. And so you, you have an ability as a leader to embody what you create in positive ways and so you can get that service or product mix right or wrong. And people will, of course, also judge the, the things you create, the art and uh, products or services. I just, I'm trying to create a distinction and a dimension between the people side of vision and strategy. And then when it, once it does come down to developing and managing products and services and you put those out there, they like embody or should and connect and align with what the vision and mission of the whole product is and there's that's another risk or area for misalignment yeah i think you have to i think what you're i think you have to feel i mean people have to really believe and feel they have to be jazzed up they gotta they gotta be on board mm -hmm. with uh, you know with with the vision and and because that's what helps people you know people work longer hours they, they put in the time and energy because they believe in the in in the vision they believe in it um, yeah, they want some monetary compensation. I think that's that's important. But I think again, it depends on your product. Um, but if it's if it's a product that uh, again kind of has some impact on on the world in some positive way, people are highly motivated by that. Mm -hmm. uh, versus, well, I just work in a factory and we make paper clips. Uh, I think there's a very different vision, different management structures. You know? It, it has to filter into all parts of the organization, I assume, like the, the values and, and vision of the beliefs. If, if you do build it from a quality core and a, and a, a positive place, then, then that leaches out into the rest of the system, hopefully, and that you've created an enterprise or a business or something beyond just the leader that's bigger than the leader that has more meaning to people. Am I on base at all as far as the tool of vision and strategy, why it's there? I think you're right. I think um, that everything in terms of the vision, it should, it should be infiltrating your product, your service, your customers. Everything is aligning on that vision and leadership. Why would you go buy an iPod if you didn't believe in the Apple mm -hmm. value? Why would you go and buy somebody's product if you didn't believe in what they, 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 they said? So if they were burning down trees and destroying ecology and you were you were you believed in ecology you wouldn't want to be aligned with that company i think you're right so how how central are design and brand to that so i think there's there's this abstract notion of it feels pretty fluffy i think for me to talk about vision and strategy they they feel like big big topics that are kind of hard to nail down in some ways i think we can define them fairly clearly I guess I feel like the thing that ultimately embodies that at a minimum in a company is, is a brand, mm -hmm. that you create a brand so that it, it is that insignia mm -hmm. of the values and vision and, vision and all that stuff. It, it is everything, like the Coca-Cola brand or the Nike brand. These are things that those organizations invest you know, millions of dollars into, literally. And then, and then I think to that same point, there's, there's a design element where you're you're doing these things intentionally and it's it's not it's not an accident that um you know a that you have a brand b that you're investing money in the brand and then but there's there's a whole design element to i think figuring out how to get the values into the market as value that people are willing to buy and pay for so, so how would you define the term brand then in the way that you're using it i just would think of like the nike symbol i think it's all things that uh, come to mind when somebody thinks of a brand, you know, so if, if you just take the Nike symbol and think of all the athletes and all the clothes and all the times you've ever seen it and, and like all of the meaning that that thing has to you, mm -hmm. the, uh, you know, Nike made the decision to use that insignia as the central notion of its, of its brand, right? And so the business of Nike is is spent making the brand and its value as valuable mm -hmm. as it can through its products and services and mission and vision. That that brand can't be everything. Like with Nike, they you know Nike works because it's different from everyone else. So part of the branding process is how are we different? 
Yeah. What are we offering that's different and defining that differentness? It's kind of almost, it's kind of like creating what our, you know, our brand is the in-group and everyone else is the out-group. What, yeah. what, what can we do that's different? So the un- uniqueness part, I agree 100%, and that also gets into niching. And so let's maybe take a quick break at that point. And so when we come back, we'll talk about niche and differentiation and why not everybody wants to just talk the business talk and buzzwords and speak high level about vision and mission and strategy and that you could actually focus and and find a niche in the market and a brand and be different. So we'll talk about that when we come back. This episode of the Apps Check Capable Communities podcast is brought to you by C-Town Media, creating movements to make impact. If you are a business or individual who has a message to get out there, let C-Town Media help. They provide recording and podcasting services from beginning to end, podcast setup, recording, engineering, production, and distribution. They also offer small business marketing and branding consulting, as well as real estate industry-specific consulting and training. To learn more, visit ctownmedia slash appscheck. That's S-E-A hyphen townmedia.com slash appscheck. Why must they focus in order to be successful? Or is it even a requirement? This could be a strategic question about maybe that's one approach is you find a niche and focus on a niche and anchor in a niche and develop in a niche versus other people maybe have a shotgun approach that works for them. They sell crappy uh, toys to kids, uh, you know, whatever (laughs) that they swallow. (laughs) I mean, I I think it, I think it depends on, on what, what marketplace you're in, you know, like for me, you know, a small business owner doing real estate, like you can't, you know, shake a dead cat without hitting a real estate agent. I mean, the market's just inundated, and they all kind of do the same thing. And, um, and so, I mean, I think that the niche niche thing is really important because it, it seems like the default mentality is, I'm just going to shotgun it out there and see what sticks. I'm going to throw stuff at the wall, and hopefully I get clients. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's terrible because you're, you're basically, like, leaving your entire livelihood up to chance. Um, now, maybe that doesn't work in other industries, but I mean, in, in you know, something like, like real estate or, or services industry, like you have to, I think you have to be niche to attract the right people. Because if you try to appeal to everyone, you're going to appeal to no one because you're just going to be, you're just going to be background noise. And, and what's a specific example of that to just kind of be more specific about? So sure. for example, I would just, so, yeah, go ahead. Sure. For example, um, the, the way I acquire new clients, I have like, you know, my avatar of the ideal client, right? You know, like the 40 and under the tech savvy, the urban, uh, I'm not going to turn down other clients, but I mean, that's, that's kind of what I focus on. Right. And so all my marketing, my message, everything is geared towards people like me that are, a message is going to resonate with them, you know? And so that's a lot different than just, Hey, I'm a real estate agent. I've got, you know, you know, someone who wants to buy or sell. Oh, okay. Call I'm me. here like, for you. you. This you guy's know, selling to me. Yeah, He's you're just, inauthentic. You're just He's just noise, a shyster. You know? And that's a lot different than, you know, hey, I'm, I'm a military veteran and, you know, I have a, a, a veteran program. Like, that is going to appeal to a very specific group of people yeah. and get you much more attention than just, I'm a generic agent. I've got no message. I've got no, sure. you know. I think no that's one, one of the counterintuitive learnings that I got was from in businesses changing from the thinking that you need to appeal to everybody so you can throw out a wide net mm-hmm. to realize that the more focused, the more defined, the more niche you are in your approach, the cheaper it is for you to market to that, but the more money you'll make. Because everybody can always say, oh, will you do that? Do you do this as well? Mm-hmm. So if you as a realtor say, well, I focus on two-bedroom homes in this two-square-block area for families of three kids and one dog that's all i sell for and then he said well would you sell for two dogs <laughs> well i could consider that right right sure. but people can automatically think of something when you really narrow it down to somebody to recommend you it helps with storytelling right i mean yeah, exactly. isn't that the main sure. part you, of it that's yeah, what it your feels message. like you're yeah, anchoring yeah. you're becoming more specific and steve i bet you can speak to this well yeah the storytelling i think developing a narrative helps you again to differentiate yourself from the competition you want to somehow be different so, you know, appealing to uh, veterans in real estate is a way, let's say nobody else is doing that, that helps differentiate you. And that helps also create a sense of authenticity because you're a vet, you're working for vets, and, and, and you know, that people are going to believe you. Um, so the quite, uh, another issue is, you know, how broad, I mean, how you can narrow things too narrow, 
James is, just gave a good example where you have, you know, only two blocks and, <laughs> you know, and you're not, not going to hit any business because there's only two yeah. blocks and, you know, what you're looking at. That's too narrow. So, it, it, again, it probably But you depends. have every single one in right, two right, blocks. Right, right. You've got to know that single block. But it probably, again, depends on your product. depends on how, you know, how, it, um, yeah, how, much, how much money you want to make, how expansive you, your market's going to be. So, um, yeah, I think having the right narrative is pretty important. Yeah, so the focus part and scope, I think, is another word that fits into this category as well. So you can start from the, the broad and ethereal scope of I have the objective to attract all people in the world to my <laughs> business idea. Or you could anchor down and narrow down into, you know, the hy hyper niche of, right. you know, the, the block level mm -hmm. of, of the people that you're going to attract to your city block. And, and then the questions, and then at that point, I think the questions become more analytical about what's the best, what is really your mission and purpose. So it feels to me at a minimum, perhaps, that you would create a niche so that you can, you can be on the, the lower side of the spectrum and be as specific as you can to the people to whom you're speaking, perhaps. And then from there, like you say, explain James, James is that we, you can always kind of go back up to the higher level and say, mm -hmm. oh, yes, well, I've thought about that as well. I happen to know a person or I happen to be that person as well. But I did, I did think that we were talking about this very specific and interesting thing that I do that you'll remember. Yeah. Well, and I learned this from a guy who sells databases to city organizations. And he said that when he... You know, there's cities all over the country, and so he can sell it anywhere he wants. But when he started narrowing it down to cities that were 10,000 10, in capacity, they, were, they didn't have a seaport nearby, all of a sudden these guys, people that he talked to, could say, oh, I know a company like that. I know a governor who would just love this database that you're working on. And he said that he doubled his money every time he narrowed that niche yep. a little bit more. And so that's, that's, that, I learned a lot from that, and that's... What I, that's the type of niche marketing that I'm thinking of. And I, I think the story I heard about a week ago from, from a, a fellow is when you tell the story, so you could say, for example, like a mistake would be I have a product for women, and then in people's mind at that point, all they picture is all the women, women they've yeah. ever thought about. But if, if you start to anchor it down and become more specific and you say uh, pregnant, unwed, Etc. you know, teenagers, then, you know, yeah. your mind anchor, you know, filters down to a more concrete and specific thing. And then from there, you're able to tell and explain the narrative and, and go from there. But I think if you are dealing with people in the ethereal realm, it's maybe not a great sales tool. Yeah. I think I, when I talk to, I talk to a lot of people about how to network and how to give referrals or ask for referrals. And, and if you were say, for example, in the construction industry, that's a big thing, just like you were saying. But if you're a plumber in the construction industry, that's a smaller thing. If you're construction, if you're a plumber that specializes in putting um, plumbing into brand new housing complexes, that's a much more defined thing. Right. Now you know your market is contract, general sure. contractors. And now you can think of 10 or 12 general contractors. Whereas before, if you just said a plumber, well, who would I know as a stopped up top? And so one, one thing I'm thinking about here, I just kind of realized, is that, is that it feels like in the vision and strategy concept, you're talking about the supply side almost exclusively. It's, it's almost thought about as like my supply and what I'm going to give and my value and this and that and the other thing. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily tops down, but kind of. It's, it's like what I'm going to do. Whereas there's a demand side, kind of to your point, where those two things need to line up. And there's, there's a reality, and the business question is, how big is that, that market or class of those people that need those plumbing services? Right. And so there's, there's a niche between supply and demand that is of a particular and addressable size that the business could find and, and, and message to and identify this. Anyway, this, this seems like a a tool or benefit of, of the uh, niching. We become more specific and we can sell better. Yeah, and it costs less. Because if we're just doing to our two block area, it's a lot easier to sell to 20 or 30 people in two blocks 
than it is to try and sell to everybody in the in the country. Mm-hmm. You have much bigger bang for your buck with your marketing dollar. And so that's also a strategic comment, right? So yeah. if, I, if my strategy is that I'm niche and I'm focused, and when I'm talking to people in my sales processes, which could be global, right? when my salespeople talk to people, they talk to people about very specific things that those people exactly. are aware of and, and understand and are localized to their community or what have you. So you can sell in that space, but then strategically you could have another person that's still sharing the same values and beliefs and vision and whatnot that happens to be selling the same products or services to somebody else in their local market, but localizing their value to that market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, kind of a concrete example I think of, uh, you know, from my world, so I mean, you. In, in real estate, you know, or, or marketing, you know, there's what we call farming, right? So you pick a neighborhood of 500 houses. Now you could send a generic letter to all of them saying, hey, these are the services I provide. And you might get one house, two houses that respond, probably nothing uh, if, if you only do it one time. Or you could say, hey, hey, Facebook, let me do this really targeted, you know, of, uh, ad that just gets in front of people that, you know, are 40, work in the tech sector, uh, have lived there for five years, likely to move. All of a sudden, those marketing dollars are going way further, getting in front of the people. You'll probably get a response of some sort. You know, it's all those things you're talking about. Like, it's exactly. cheaper. It's way more effective. You know, like, you're known for something. Like, that, that's the power of, you know, niche marketing. And, and, if it's, and if you're actually targeting specific incomes and specific things like that, you can project your cash flow a lot better, too, which is a key to any business. So are, can we discuss strategy now? Do, you, do um, we feel, go ahead, Steve. I like to just, I, I think the other side of attracting customers is also attracting employees. Mm-hmm. And I think part of having a good niche or brand is you need to differentiate yourself so you attract the talent you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you don't differentiate yourself enough, if you don't have an esprit de corps, you don't have something that makes you different and attracts people to your business, you're not going to get the, the talent you want. So, and, and how, what are some tools or skills that people could use? So I guess I agree with you. To, mm-hmm. to this point, we mainly, like I was mentioning, I guess I had felt like we were talking about the, the demand side, or the, sorry, mm-hmm. the supply side, that we're a business supplier and these are the things that we're good at. But, but there's also a labor supply to you, like a, a business needs to also find what's in it for the employee to join the mission because the mission of the business is so interesting and that you're such a great employer and all the good yeah, things. Yeah, it may be, it may be that it's an interesting and uh, I'm willing, you know, somebody might come in and be willing to work for very little because they really believe in the mission statement because it's going to save the whales or help the <laughs> yeah. environment or something. On the other hand, I might be producing something um, that really isn't uh, altruistic uh, and someone will be come in and they'll say, geez, I'm really here for the money. I'm here for the job. And maybe that's sure. really what that's about. That's fair. You know, so I think you, you again, it depends, I think, on the product and, uh, and kind of again, going back to values and mission. Yeah, so the labor supply, I mean, that's a huge point. I'm, I, that actually almost surprises me in some ways that we left that off. But the, you, you can obviously know, you know, the, the business depends on its employees and its suppliers for its delivery. And and you can you can be 100% market focused and externally focused and saying all the things to ex- excite your customers to to come to your doors, but there's a whole other set of stakeholders that need to align to your vision and values and mission and those kinds of things, which would be your employees at a minimum uh, and probably suppliers, investors, etc. But there's a, I agree 100% like there's a whole other set of stakeholders other than customers that are on the supply side where there has to be messaging and values that apply to them that would excite them enough to come and want to partake. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm interested to hear your guys' take on this, but I mean, the, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know that it, the, the message, you know, the branding, the vision, like, I don't know if it's all that much different on the employee side, because you're still, whether on the customer or employee side, you're still trying to draw people that are like-minded, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. The, that, mm-hmm. you know, that say, hey, I like the way this company does things, what they do, why they do it, and you know that's could that that should be true, you know, if you're consistent yeah. on the employee side and on the the customer side. Mm-hmm. I think I think you're right on on the money there, and I think that 
when we go back to the mission statement and the strategy statements and the core values, that that needs to be that that needs to be a part of it. Your leadership, one of your leadership responsibilities, and I was just talking to Brian Ness over. I'm not Brian Ness, but um, uh, the president of Aquaquip. I just did an interview, and that was one of the things he said was that as a leader, I have to build a culture that will keep my employees part of uh, you know, aligned with me, so that they don't go find a job someplace else. They're proud to be working for Aquaquip. So I, it, the way he put it, he puts it much better. I've got it in a blog article. But I was just, it just opened my eyes on this piece of it here, where we need to have a vision statement and mission that is supportive of the people that work for us as well as the customers that we're trying to attract. What, what's more salient right now for our discussion? Is it, is it strategy or culture? Do you, wanna, you guys want to talk more about culture and its importance and, and why it's important to create a positive culture, for example? kind of the internal side, I think there's a whole line of discussion there. And then the strategic stuff, I guess I feel like, is a more holistic conversation that's internally and externally focused that might include a step of make good culture or, uh, you know, uh, uh, retain employees. I mean, I feel like they're linked. It's just it's, it kind of seems like the chicken or egg. Like, what is, does good strategy come out of healthy culture or the other way around, you know? I agree. So the culture is kind of the swamp. I mean, that's that's what <laughs> culture is. Is I think it's a pretty, very ethereal thing of of culture, and and uh, mold and and what what that word really is. But and there's something very. Um, so it's kind of who there. likes to live in the swamp. Exactly, you're creating a swamp, but you probably want the swamp to be more like a hot tub. <laughs> well, you want it to be. Depends if you're in Washington. Or <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Yeah. I think you want it to be uh, adaptive over time. So as new employees come in, new people are going to affect the culture. You know, they might change it in in positive direction, possibly negative direction, but you always need new input. And I think bringing people in helps enrich, possibly, mm. the the culture. Right. There, right. So there's a di diversity element, like the enrichment part about about a. Uh, variability and, ver and variety that the, the en enrichment aspect is probably a thing that generally excites or would, would excite many people, probably not all, but, but the, the richness of a vision or the richness of, of a culture and, and the history of, of either of those two things are important factors for attracting people to your world. Yeah, and I think as a business gets larger, um, how the culture is implemented changes over time. Mm -hmm. um, so everybody, it's a small little group of people. Uh, it's fairly collaborative. It may even be mm -hmm. kind of flat. Um, and But as it grows, there can be more hierarchical systems um, placed. And, uh, and then some that's where a lot of the difficulties arise, mm -hmm. is how do you create a hierarchy uh, that actually fits in with the mission and the values? Yeah, yeah the, the structural elements are, are probably not for everyone, but they're also skill, skills that a, ne a leader would need to implement to make a company that can grow and grow healthily or continue to create diversity and inclusion. Yeah, maybe you don't even have a leader. Maybe you have something that's more of a democratic business. Mm -hmm. uh, they're actually, I think I was reading somewhere, there's like 15, 20% of the businesses in the United States are actually co-ops. They're mm. actually run by, they're owned by everyone at the business. And some of them are fairly large. Mm -hmm. uh, and people don't know that. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, it goes back to, you know, what, you know, who, what kind of business do you want? Right. You know, Which, what, again, the values. Am I, am I interested yep. in a, an ownership business? Uh, or am I interested in a business where um, uh, there's a more diffuse, own, diffuse sorts of, uh, of responsibility and ownership? Yep. Do, do you think that that culture changes as it grows, as the business grows, then it, it sounds like you're saying that. Oh yeah, yeah, I think so, definitely. I think it definitely. And it has to, you don't want it to stagnate either. I think, it, I think it's necessarily dynamic. I can't imagine a culture, I mean, maybe you talk about the military, I suppose, or certain countries uh, like, like North Korea <laughs> or right. something like that. But I mean, they're, they're necessarily dynamic. Yeah, I, would, I, don't I would think, think. I don't think even if you wanted to keep it static, you can, I mean, you, you look at, you know, United States Army, right? Yeah. So huge, huge culture, uh, 
huge shift in the last 10 years because it, it's run by civilian leaders, which mm-hmm. are in a certain context and the country's moving in a certain direction socially. Inevitably, it's going to change. Yep. Okay, great. Well, that, that was good talk about, about culture and about, um, about yeah. So, so when we come back, let's uh, take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll, talk, we'll try to focus on strategy specific, specifically. And um, uh, we'll, we'll cover that topic in detail in just a minute. This episode of the Abstract Podcast is brought to you by Adventag. Adventag is a leading Seattle-based data-as-a-service company that helps e-commerce store owners running Shopify or Magento gain many new insights in their data through its trained staff and machine learning algorithms. Go to adventag.com slash today to start reaping the rewards of increased sales. That's A-D-V-E-N-T-A-G dot com. All right, here, here we are. We're, we're at the Abstract uh, Capable Communities podcast, and we're talking about our topic today is, is developing vision and strategy, and we're going to focus on the last little part here, uh, talking specifically about strategy. And uh, we, were just, we were just talking before we start here just about what, what is strategy and, and how does strategy work. And some of the ideas is that there's the overarching and big strategy that would apply to large organizations like the U.S., Army, for example, or the U.S. military, which would clearly have a, a strategy and tactics and goals and structure, all kinds of stuff that they need to implement for, for governance and sustainability and, and basically uh, risk management in some ways or their mission. And, and then you have, in, in a civilian sense, you'd have really large organizations like Microsoft, for example, which also has you know, say it's it's implementing the cloud and it has had to pivot from an on-premise uh, implementation of its of its tools that had been a strategy for it. And now it has to adopt a new strategy to keep up the, with the times. And, and now cloud is the way. And so what are what are your guys thoughts on as uh, the, our guests here about some of the critical aspects of strategy and and why? Why or how organizations implement strategy, and what are, what are the benefits of the tool of strategy? So, strategy, I think, is a reflection of the mission first, but that can mean anything. You can develop lots of strategies around that, but um, strategy becomes where are we going to be in five years kind of thinking, not the day-to-day type of how do we get this executed. I don't care how you do it, just get it done. That's what it, That's a tactical way of looking at it. That strategy, though, needs to be aligned again with the mission, vision, goals of the organization in the same way. Um, so in your question, you were asking... Well, we also need to break the strategy down, right? So I think there's a view okay. of it that's overarching and grand. I think there's the idea of the grand strategy. What is our grand strategy or grand plan, the overarching thing that we can name, and it's the notion of how we're operating and why. And, and then I think that that strategy gets broken down into either tactics or smaller strategies, such as in a corporation, you'd break it down into HRIT marketing. Uh, products and whatnot, and so you you build the structure so that you can uh, remove too much complexity and risk from a single overarching strategy, and and uh, chop that up into parts and bits that each can be managed and changed more independently, like Legos. I think you mentioned the word risk. I think that's real critical here, uh, because if you're a startup, how you're going to do strategy is going to be based on how much risk you can handle. And I guess when you're a large corporation, there's also levels of risk. How much money do we put into research? How much of a chance do we take on a new product? I mean, there's all kinds of levels of risk. And also risk also is dependent on how your, you know, how your uh, business is set up. You know, is it a private business? Mm-hmm. Do you have shareholders, et cetera. You know, so that's going to have an impact on how you look at risk and how you look at strategy. I, I agree with that. So actually, in the APQC model, they break out risk as its own separate function. So in, uh, I can't remember what number it is in the model, but one of the 13 characteristics of the APQC model, their process classification framework, is risk, compliance, remediation, and resiliency. So there's a whole domain that is not vision and strategy that is the management of risk, probably the, you know, the identification and management of risk, remediation, which is to say correct, 
uh, compliance, which is to say the, the measurement, the distance and the difference between what you say you're going to do or w what you're expected to do and that variance there, and then the remediation, like I mentioned, and then the resiliency part is, I think, an element of vision or an important element of vision is that you're trying to not necessarily, and this, I think, Steve, is to your point about the type of organization we can talk about these big guys versus a startup or versus just a project. If I was just trying to plan an event to, you know, host Lollapalooza this year, it might just be for that project. And so I only do that thing. And so my strategy and tactics and everything is just about doing that one event. And so it, it, it's kind of dead at once it's, once I did it. But yeah, once you, but when you, yeah. did, when you executed on that particular Lollapalooza, yeah. you would use the overall mission and strategy of the original. I think I would develop it. it for that local thing, right? Yeah. It would be, it'd be localized to that particular thing. And I, I would, probably be able to keep it simple for that project. But you wouldn't change it. You wouldn't change the basic reason for Lollapalooza. I, I, think that, I think there's a discussion point that we have here, which is there's the overarching and grand, mm -hmm. and that can even happen at the project level where it might just be a, a and the Lollapalooza planning is probably no small feat. It's probably a fairly complex project, right. realistically. But if the project was, or if we get down to the task level, for example, and, and we discuss my strategies of driving from here to two blocks away, uh -huh. they're fairly limited and my, the field from which I have to choose, the choices I have to make are far more limited. I, I, of course, there's you know, an infinite number of ways that I get, could get from here to two blocks away, some that are more- Worldwide. <laughs> more better, you know, more efficient and effective than mm -hmm. others. So you need a measurement system and objectives where the strategy is for the attainment of goal and, and that you're from the field of options and methods, you've selected one, and that's the one, and that's the core one, and that's your central one. Mm -hmm. So, strategy. <laughs> Let's see what else. I is guess, there I guess about when you brought up risk, I was, I, the way you described it, Eric, I, I, I wasn't thinking so much in terms of risk management kind of you're defending against liability and, yeah. and and you want to make sure no one sues you and all that i, I was thinking more kind of more the the sort of uh, everyday idea of what risk is is that mm. you're willing to gamble sure you're willing to put up say your startup you're willing to put up fifty thousand dollars or mortgage your house or something i mean what what risk are you taking you know in and and it, it has a, usually a monetary value and of course if you're an established business and you're developing a new product, you're also taking risk. And what degree do you risk? And, and you know, there are obviously some companies that are, are you know, less risk aversive than other companies. Yeah. Um, and it seems, again, it seems that the companies that are willing to take risks usually do better in the long run. You know, it's the companies that are too conservative yeah. and, 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 and don't take enough risk. And in that sense, haven't really developed an interesting strategy about, sure. or a vision, or again, connected to vision of, of um, you know, to, yeah, to, to create a product that's, that's going to be new and innovative. So, so the attitude about risk is, is what, what you're talking yes, about. Yes, yeah. I think that, I think that there's, there's companies that take too much risk as well, as well as not enough risk. And I imagine it's an it's a interesting balance. I think there's a, there's other aspects to that equation as well. I think other than than just risk, I think there's assumptions, for example, which uh, may or may not. Uh, so I think assumptions unto themselves are risks, but if if they're undocumented, they're they're just assumptions. And so I think there's another category there about validation, for example, uh, and I think of qualification in this same part. And I really think of it as like I don't know. It's, exclusively validation but the feedback cycle of, of listening and I don't think it's just about risk identification and risk mitigation and that the objective or a strategy that a, an organization could use would be to you know mitigate and, and reduce risk to the degree possible I think there's still dark sides to even that which include uh, too many assumptions and too little qualification and too, too little validation where you're just dumb. Yeah, yeah. And, I, think, I think you need to test yeah. your ideas. You need yeah. to test it out in the, the market with customers. I mean, 
that's part of the strategy, I think, is, is testing things. Yeah. Um, but you're still always, at the end, you're always taking a leap of faith. I mean, at some point, there's only so much risk assessment you can do, yeah. and then you just jump in. And some people are willing to jump in with very little risk assessment, and some people need a lot more. Yeah. And even with that assessment, some yeah. people are willing, willing to take much bigger risks yes. than other people. And so, so given your risk tolerancy, tolerance, you would, you would select the organization or leader, what have you, the leaders would select a strategy that fits their vision, values, risk profile, mm-hmm. and, and implement a strategy based mm-hmm. on those things that applies to their domain and has clear tests and and this kind of thing yeah, is, yeah. is that I, like I think, a plan? Yeah, yeah. I think it is a plan. I think it's yeah. much. I think if you're if you're involved in a startup, if you're an entrepreneur, that's generally much higher risk taking mm-hmm. than if you're part of some large corporation and you're developing some ancillary product. Mm-hmm. There's some risk. Or but it's, I think the uh, an accounting firm I've always found is one of the least risk risk accepting <laughs> yes. of any company, <laughs> right. any type of company. Whereas a startup tech. Yes. company is the highest willingness to take on risk yeah. almost too much uh, often too much risk I'm, i mentioned this to uh, christian at lunch is uh i've i've seen somebody write about the the hierarchy of vi- first on the top is probably values and vision and then you get into strategy so we're kind of going down and then we get into plan, and we just talked about kind of what are some of the elements of plan. We just identified those and talked about those. And then beyond plan gets, when we're now starting to get very concrete and applied and the rubber's meeting the road, and you have s- schedule and or budget, where you've now come down to your true resources and constraints. And this is the world of project management mm. is really all of this, quite frankly. But... Um, at some point, it does it does boil down to your resources and the physical reality of the world, and what can you bring to bear given your money and given your time and given your, I suppose, the energy capital you have for your project. But that that's where the rubber meets the road. I think down at that at that deep level of of your monetary budget, your time budget. And, and how to, and this is the strategy thinking, is how do you use the, how are you going to use those tools and communicate about them for mm-hmm. your mission? Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think the, I, I love the three variables, um, scope, tolerant, uh, scope, time, and resources. Um, and I think that greatly affects how well you, uh, how much risk that you're taking on and how, and what your strategy is going to be. So you don't take on too much risk or too little risk. Um, the more, the quicker you try to do it in, to do something, the more it's going to cost you. But if you can reduce that time, if you can increase that time period, all of a sudden your risk goes down. Right, right. So that that's a point of trade-offs, right? So yeah. And and like like I said earlier, the, in if you have infinite choices, between those infinite choices, you need to like literally trade off like every single other thing until you get down to the thing that is your niche and your strategy and your vision and your mm-hmm. mission and you're serious about what you're going to do and you think that it has a good plan mm-hmm. and you've thought through the details of execution. Yeah, I think in psychology we call this reality testing. Yeah. You know, it's, it's actually looking at the reality. You know, how much money do I have? You know, do I have people interested in this? Are they willing to commit? You mean, what, what, what can I really do? Have you do? thought this through at all? <laughs> yeah, right. right. But, but the reality yeah. testing is important. And then yeah. that obviously is going to affect your mission. And, you know, they kind of keep going back and forth. But yeah. I think, you know, companies that get off the ground have good reality testing. Sure. You know, there, of course, there's always some level of risk. There's some, there are variables you can't control. You don't know. Yeah. Uh, but you, you know, you, you throw the dice. How, how about what are you guys? What are you guys' attitudes on if you're going to fail, fail fast? This came up. This came up <laughs> when I was in the meetup, and I shared a story from from work, and all of the advice from nearly everybody, I think, except for Steve, there, was if you're going to fail, fail fast. And I think there's strategies. Uh, in life, like uh, living a long life and you know not getting injured, that are risk averse. There's risk averse strategies that are basically result in if you're going to fail, fail slow. 
<laughs> or <laughs> if I'm going to fail in a car accident, I definitely <laughs> right. want to fail slow. Exactly, going one mile an hour. <laughs> oh, ouch, that, that hurt a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but if you try it, this is a good example, because I, I, if you try to avoid too much risk, then you begin to live a life where, let's say, you're not doing anything, and yeah. then your nutrition goes down, you're not exercising, and you die quicker because you didn't take any risk. Yeah. I mean, we're, humans were built for stress. We're sure. built to take stress and to take risks. Yeah. Right, so there's a survival thing. I mean, is is that a core facet of all this stuff or sustainability where we're trying to keep ourselves alive and healthy and well and we're trying to create businesses or projects or relationships that are alive and healthy and well? Yeah, that, that's a, and we've got a psychiatrist in the room. That's a very interesting question because I've thought about businesses in terms of Maslow's Ladder. So when you're down at the bottom, you do different things than when you're up at the top of Maslow's Ladder. I would think it would be the same thing with business as well. Yeah, I think it's a mixture. I think, I, I, I think people, I mean, you have to survive. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of people do a lot of things that have nothing to do with their survival. Uh, you know, and, and spend their time and energy in, in lots of ways but, that, you know, they don't have to do with, with feeding themselves or putting, you know, uh, you know uh, a house, getting a house. Or Yeah, there's, there's like flash in the pan type of entertainment things that people do that I think are good, right? I think there's a, a serious context where life is serious and you're here to survive. And then I think there's probably like a fun and whimsy context where you you do th- like a comedian... I'm sure, I know they're very well planned in what they say, for example, and they, they you know, the jokes, they actually have tested and reality tested. Their best content has been proven uh, episodically, you know, right. time and again, and then they finally land on what really resonates, and that becomes their act, essentially. Um, but, but my point is, is there's, it seems like there's strategies that are random or fun, I suppose, that, that just uh, speckle in entertainment factors or, and maybe this is part of brand or something, but if you're all, if you're all droll and robotic and just doing the stuff like everybody else is doing, then maybe you haven't developed a niche. And if you can't figure out how to add random and interesting and exciting aspects to what you're doing, then why bother? Are you thinking of a specific industry when you say that? Well, I mean, I, I think that the business consulting industry, so Steve and I in, in, in years past have had conversations. I would, t- I would come to Steve and I would tell Steve about these great ideas I had about whatever it was and or just basically, you know, things that should happen at businesses. They were just obvious to me, uh, these corrections, remediations that businesses should take and it was just couldn't be more obvious or, or that I had this vision of like how a business should work. And Steve, in my company at the, at the time, and still my, my original name of my business is Efficient Trends, Efficiency and Trends mashed up together. And I think Steve gave me the idea of inefficient trends, which was like, the, do the opposite. <laughs> What's, what is it like, you know, just flip it on its, on its head. Mm-hmm. What is it like, rather than thinking of things that are efficient and perfect and effective, to thinking the opposite? And I think that's a creative mindset at least to think from that you could do things that are totally random and exciting that could be good strategies because nobody else is thinking of them. Yeah, I think counterintuitive that's yeah. my favorite type of thinking right at the point at this point. That's where you find competitive ed- advantage, I think. Yeah, looking the counterintuitive, looking for the anomalies, yeah. thinking in opposites. Um, that's hard. It's it's a difficult process. And would those be facilitation tools? So let's say somebody was a strategic consultant and an advisor to companies that help them think. There's there's that risk where uh, they they benchmark the industry and and just me too and copy everybody and and you know they they everybody else is blue and they're yellow but it's the same stuff and nobody knows the difference essentially. But I, I would think that it's a tool of a professional facilitator or like a strategic consultant that helps people think out of the box. Yeah, and help, but as a facilitator, you want people to be aware of who they are. Again, mm-hmm. it gets back to, you know, if you're looking at So you risk. think too far out of the box. Yeah, no, well, but, you know, if your customers are fairly conservative and don't want to take a lot of risk, then, you know, there may be a product that's just slightly different yeah. than some other product. But you might then be working with somebody who is wants something very radical and revolutionary, 
on the other hand, is the market ready for that? And then it's, it's a higher risk. Yeah. And it may or may not fit the brand. You can only pivot so hard. You can only yeah. hit the brakes so fast or crank the steering right. wheel so yeah. fast. I think a good consultant kind of matches where people are at uh, and then tries to expand their world as much as possible. Yeah. But, you know, it, it's, it, you, but you have to be where people are at. You have to come where they're at, yeah. not where you're at, uh, because you know they, they might be more conservative, less, less risk aversive than yeah. you, or whatever. You know they may have different, completely different values. They may be you know a very they want may a very authoritarian top yeah. down business structure, and you're not interested in that. I think I think too. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay. No, go ahead. Uh, I, I was just going to say. I mean, I, I think it's interesting because I mean it's, I mean maybe someone out there has figured out you know a system to determine this, but I mean. Like you're saying, you know, if, if you're too far outside the box and, you know, your, your clientele or, or the world isn't ready for you, like, you could be as innovative as you want and, you know, you could be a Tesla. Hey, in 100 years, they'll realize you're brilliant, but now you're just a nut job, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, and something else you said, Steve, got me thinking, you're, you're kind of talking about, you know, calculated risk and we're talking about, you know, the entrepreneurial, you know, person in the tech sector is probably, you know, willing to take way more risk than the, uh, the accountant or whatever. Um, you know, and but there's definitely something different between the the calculated risk and just a foolish. Hey, I'm just I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm just gonna you know I'm gonna fail fast. You know, like I, I think it's an interesting concept. I've never really thought about it in those terms. Um, you know, I mean, how how do you know if you're gonna fail or succeed fast? I mean, it seems like that would be more like I don't I don't have a plan, but I'm gonna do this thing and I hope it works out. <laughs> right. Versus the it's calculated. And, you know, so, yeah, there's risk, there's things you can't determine, but, you know, you're, you're all in as opposed to you're so mitigated that, you know, it, it's safe and you, maybe you'll succeed, but it'll be take 20 years versus two years, you know. Yeah, I think, I think, I think success is somewhat random. I right. mean, I, I think you do the reality testing, but at some point, it, maybe it's okay to fail. Maybe it's okay to just start a business. Maybe it's okay to be Tesla who, you know, has a crazy idea long ago and nothing happens, but that creates the foundation for somebody else to develop an idea. Sure. So, though, you know, maybe we shouldn't so feel so bad if we start a business or we have ideas uh, that don't go anywhere, right. you know, or just influence a very few people. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in the, you know, but you never know, maybe in five or ten years or whenever, your idea might take off, but it's because you had that idea and you influenced somebody. Yeah. It's like being a teacher in some sense. You know, sure. you, you might teach somebody something and 20 years down the road, uh, you know, suddenly this person's doing something pretty incredible with their life. Yeah. yeah. Well, are you teaching reality? Is that, is that uh, I don't know if that maybe <laughs> makes sense, but I, I can kind of see your, I totally understand your metaphor that uh, like an entrepreneur is, is could be seen as, as a teacher. You're you're testing and trying things where your students are your ideas or what have you, and, and you're putting them out there and, and testing them. And some some may stick and some some may not, which would also be a strategy. If you're all in 100% invested in a single thing, then you have a lot of risk. If you're somewhat diversified and are trying a few things and and dabbling here and there, then your risk is lessened because you have a diversified portfolio. But your resources are also lessened, so your potential is lessened. I mean, true. There, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's zero sum type of issue there. Sure. The hardest thing I find people is is pulling the trigger is is actually doing doing something. Yeah. For you some, know, you people, have all yeah. these ideas, but but act, You know, a lot of people don't have the confidence. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, pick, pick for a variety of reasons. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think I think when it comes to failure, the mo the thing that convinced me failure was okay was when I read Andrew Carnegie's. Uh, biography, and he said that he failed 49% of the time <laughs> at yeah. everything he did. And I thought, well, he was the richest man in the world at his time. Yeah. If yeah. he can fail that often, that must be a requirement for being successful is failing a lot. And, and volume, I think, and to volume. that same point. I think <laughs> yes. volume is definitely a, an aspect of that, yeah. and, and from a variety of perspectives. I yeah, think when, you, when, when people come, you know, when I have people, like, they're wanting to date, and they're yeah, wanting exactly, to find somebody. Exactly. And I, 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 I tell them, you know, they, the they, you know, they go on one date, it doesn't work, <laughs> no, and then over. they don't want to date anymore. And then they suck. They yeah, feel like they're not worth anything. Yeah, yeah, not worth it's it, one but, person. Right, but, but it's a numbers game. You know, yeah, you've got to right. date enough people, and like what you're saying with Carnegie, you know, you've got to be willing to fail enough mm -hmm. 
if you're a business person. Yeah. Right. And if you want to find the right partner, you've got to be willing to fail enough to find the right partner. Yeah. And some people just, you know, one failure and, and they're done for. Sure. I mean, I think your resiliency is really a huge part of whether you're going to yeah. be successful. I mean, you look at most what we'd call, you know, successful people, overnight successes, like the, the thing that they got the home run on isn't their first endeavor. Like they've failed before, they've learned, and they've kept pressing yeah. forward. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And that goes back to risk adversity, mm-hmm. whether you're dating or whether you're trying new businesses. One, one last point, and then we'll wrap it up, that I was going to ask about. And, and this is just um, summarizing a question that we were just going over is I'd mentioned once you do get down to this concrete level of, of resources, constrained resources like your monetary budget or your time budget, those, those are two limitations. I, and then when we were talking, I was realizing that there's another limitation of mindset and kind of pivot is like not, and this is the risk tolerance thing as well, is not everybody's willing to do 180, to, to be going down you know, the road this way and then go the, down the road the other way. And so we can, we can shift people by degrees. And I know, I know one, I have a manager that there's this idea of the one degree shift is if, if you, you know, shift your perception just one degree, but then you, you apply that forward for years or whatever, that's going to be a very significant distance that you travel just given that, that single, single shift. Like it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a big delta. So there's little shifts and there's big shifts. And then I think it's a, a mental constraint that people have. And, it, and I don't think it's risk tolerance, but, but people have blinders of reality and whether they're willing to look at it from you know, within what they can see or 180 degrees from what they can't. Yeah, I think in the beginning, there are the seeds of success, but there's also the seeds of disaster. And they actually go together because everything, everything ends. Everything is going to fail eventually. (laughs) Okay, we we fail, (laughs) you know, we die. So, but I think we don't like to think of that, but this is going on. This, yeah. this, you know, there are the right at the beginning. You create these seeds of success in your vision. It, it just, it's like a genetic program. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like when a, you know, egg and sperm get together and it creates a human body. You, you start off with with these beginnings, but in the beginnings are also, you know, all the patterns that might lead to disaster. Yeah. And then I guess as time unfolds, how do you mitigate disaster? How sure. do you how do you ensure success? And that's. Which is what makes it all fun, right? This is yeah. why we're here, right? <laughs> yes. Cool. Okay, well, let's maybe wrap it up on that note. Um, so th- thanks, everybody. for So this episode was about developing vision and strategy, and we talked about vision, and we talked about values, and we talked about mission, and we talked about strategy, and we talked about niche, and we talked about <laughs> a lot of stuff. So uh, thanks for joining, and thanks to my guests who are James Murray Christian Harris and Stephen Kubacki. And until next time, which will be about developing and managing products and services when we get a chance to apply all these strategies towards something that's more specific that we're delivering uh, that becomes another interface to our business clients. Thanks again. So there you have it. Another episode of the Apps Jack Capable Communities podcast, where it is our mission to help people identify and connect the missing pieces by developing and sharing the best mix of multiple disciplinary tools, techniques, and resources available. Subscribe to and check out our previous episodes on your favorite podcast app. Visit us at appsjack.com and tell all of your friends. The creator and host of the Apps Jack Capable Communities podcast is Eric Veal. The podcast is recorded, edited, and produced by Christian Harris and Seatown Media. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you for our next conversation.